Hi everyone, this is Christopher Brick welcoming you back once more to Intervals, a public humanities podcasting initiative of the Organization of American Historians. This week's guest, Matthew Getz, is a PhD candidate in history at GWU, and Matt will be joining us to discuss his research on the mercantile wars that the U.S. fought with the Barbary states of North Africa in the early 19th century. Never formally declared and forgotten by many a social studies textbook, the Barbary Wars involved a series of violent clashes between American merchant ships and North African privateers that largely took place on the high seas. They were the cause of one of the new American states' earliest foreign policy crises, and their impact on the U.S. home front reverberated especially loudly in its public discourse on the issues of slavery, race, and relationships with the Muslim world. Have a listen. In July of 1785, barely two years after the United States officially gained their independence with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, an American merchant ship, the Maria, sailed across the Atlantic Ocean from Boston towards its destination in the Mediterranean. Off the coast of Portugal, the crew of the Maria spotted a pirate ship fast approaching one of the dreaded Corsairs from what Americans then referred to as the Barbary states of North Africa, Morocco, Algiers, Tunis, and Tripoli. When we hear the word pirate today, we instantly think of the famed buccaneers of the Caribbean. But if you were a sailor from a Christian nation in the early modern period, sailing in the Mediterranean or the Eastern Atlantic, you would likely be more fearful of the Islamic Barbary pirates, who since the Middle Ages made a fortune by capturing Christian sailors bringing them back to North Africa as slaves, and demanding ransom for their release. While Americans and Europeans at the time referred to them as pirates, in reality the term privateer or corsair is more accurate, since they attacked civilian ships, but they were authorized to do so by their governments, and only attacked the ships of nations that the rulers had declared war against. The historian Robert Davis estimates that from the 16th century through the 19th century, Barbary privateers enslaved over one million Europeans. By the 18th century, most European nations had learned to mitigate the threat from Barbary, either by building navies of their own to protect their merchant marines, or by paying yearly tribute to each Barbary state in exchange for safe passage for their ships. Colonial Americans were protected by the British Navy, but when they declared their independence in 1776, sailors from the United States became prime targets. The particular Barbary Corsair that approached the Maria in 1785 was from Algiers, the most feared of the Barbary states. It was crewed by 21 battle-hardened privateers bedecked with pistols and curved scimitar swords. The outnumbered crew of six Americans surrendered without a fight. The privateers ordered the Americans onto the Algerian ship, then stripped them of their clothes to search for any hidden valuables such as jewelry or money. They then forced the Americans below deck where they encountered 36 other Christian captives, a mixture of Spanish and Portuguese sailors, taken by the Barbary Corsair on its cruise. One of the American captives, a young 17-year-old named James Cathcart, described the scene in his diary as he and his fellow captives were kept below deck as they were taken to Algiers to be sold into slavery. Let imagination conceive, says Cathcart, what must have been the sufferings of 42 men shut up in a dark room in the hold of a Barbary cruiser, full of men and filthy in the extreme, destitute of every nourishment and nearly suffocated with heat. 
Once in Algiers, the captives were paraded through the streets and led to the palace of the Dey, or ruler of Algiers. The Dey purchased the American slaves and put them to work either in his personal gardens or in the harbor repairing fortifications. Less than a week later, Algerine corsairs captured a second American merchant ship and abducted the crew. A few years later, in 1793, Algerine corsairs captured 12 more ships, increasing the number of American slaves in Algiers to well over 100. The American captives in Algiers were only a small fraction of the problem Barbary corsairs posed to the United States. Between 1785 and 1815, so roughly a 30-year period, privateers from the various Barbary states captured 35 American ships in total and enslaved several hundred American sailors. The American government first tried to free the captives via ransom and yearly tribute payments, but when this failed to prevent further depredations on American commerce, the United States sent its young navy to the Mediterranean, igniting the Barbary Wars, which lasted intermittently from 1801 to 1815. With American victory in 1815, their ships were finally free to sail without fear of capture. While the narrative of the Barbary Wars is fascinating in its own right, what I want to focus on today is the impact the Barbary Wars had on American society. And what I hope this talk today shows is that the abduction of American sailors by Barbary Corsairs and the resultant Barbary Wars occurred at a crucial moment in the history of the United States. Americans had earned their independence, but they weren't yet in agreement over what kind of nation they wanted the United States to be. Were they going to emulate European nations' foreign policy or forge their own path? Were they going to become a commercial empire with financial and manufacturing institutions in the mold of Great Britain? Or were they going to maintain an agricultural nation comprised solely of yeoman farmers, planters, and enslaved laborers? And perhaps most importantly, would the revolutionary ideals of liberty and natural rights be extended to those enslaved Americans, or restricted to white property-holding men? As we've seen in our own times, wars and moments of crisis can often bring people together and unite them in a common cause, or they can reveal fault lines and divisions within a national community, and occasionally even widen those divisions. And the Barbary Wars are no different. The wars increased nationalistic pride and helped convince Americans of the need to unite under a stronger central government and ratify the Constitution. But the wars also revealed the early United States to be a fractured nation, bitterly divided by geographic section, partisanship, and by race. But our story begins with the captives themselves, as they suffered in Algiers and the other Barbary states. We have a pretty good understanding of what life was like for the American captives in Barbary, because they wrote constantly throughout their enslavement. Some kept journals, and most wrote letters back to the United States, to their families, to their communities, to elected officials, and even to the president, describing their situation and pleading for help. Newspapers often republished these letters, circulating them to a wider audience. In these letters, over 90 in all, with more likely having been written but lost to history, the captives unequivocally described their condition as slavery. One of the sailors captured in 1785, a man named Richard O'Brien from Philadelphia, stated in a letter that he and his fellow captives were living, quote, in a state of slavery and misery, the severities of which are beyond your imagination. End quote. And legally, he was right. They were considered slaves by Barbary law. And Americans at this time were intimately familiar with slavery. They knew what it looked like. Slavery existed in all 13 original American colonies which formed the United States. 
Shortly after independence, the northern states began the gradual process of abolition, but slavery was still firmly entrenched in the South. While there was a total of about 700 American slaves in Barbary throughout the late 18th and early 19th century, there were approximately 1 million enslaved African Americans in the United States in the year 1800, so roughly the same time. And in some ways, the conditions the American slaves in North Africa faced were similar to those faced by African slaves in the United States. The Americans in Barbary were forced to labor under overseers who were often cruel and abusive. The captives were beaten and forced to wear chains. They suffered from malnutrition, exhaustion, and more than a handful died of disease. And some of the American captives themselves recognized the similarity between their condition and that of slaves in America. The young Cathcart complained that his home state of Massachusetts had recently outlawed slavery, yet did nothing to help he or his fellow white captives in Barbary. He said, quote, Negroes have even had a share in your deliberations, and have reaped the benefits arising from your wise and wholesome laws and regulations, and yet we are now cast off. Another captive wrote a letter home and scribbled angrily in the margins, quote, You free your Negroes and won't free us, end quote. But Barbary slavery also differed from American slavery in several key ways. First, while the Americans in Barbary were forced to labor, work was not the primary reason for their enslavement. Receiving a ransom for their release was. And so captains and mates who could fetch higher ransoms than common sailors sometimes weren't even required to work at all, and were often given free reign of the city so long as they promised not to leave. By Barbary law, slaves were allowed to own property and earn money, and many of the American captives took advantage of this and held jobs in their spare time. For example, Cathcart owned and operated a tavern in Algiers that catered to fellow Christian slaves. Unlike in America, slavery in Barbary was not racialized. Alongside the white American slaves were slaves from Europe, the Middle East, and Sub-Saharan Africa. And in what may be the most significant difference, slavery in Barbary was not hereditary. In fact, all Christian slaves, including the American captives, were given the option of converting to Islam, at which point they would be freed and become a full-fledged member of Barbary society. And the Barbary states were full of Europeans who had done exactly this. And a handful of Americans took this offer and turned Turk, as it was then known. Even those who chose to remain enslaved could rise through the ranks of Barbary society. The Day of Algiers was impressed by Cathcart's work ethic and knowledge of several languages and appointed him his chief Christian secretary, which was an official position within Algerian government which entitled Cathcart to a salary and gave him a role in shaping Algiers' foreign policy. Another American captive, a doctor, became the primary physician to the ruler of Tripoli and his family. In all of these ways, slavery in Barbary more closely resembled the kind of slavery that is most often existed around the world, including in Native America, in which slavery is less about labor and more a way to gradually incorporate captives or outsiders into society or sell them back for ransom. Slavery as it developed on the plantations of the Americas, with its fixation on economic production and its racial and hereditary dimensions, was far more the historical aberration. Yet, despite the key differences between Barbary and American slavery, the hypocrisy of white Americans complaining of enslavement by North Africans while simultaneously holding far more Africans as slaves was obvious to anyone who cared to notice. Some anti-slavery activists in America seized on this opportunity to shame their countrymen into abolishing slavery. 
in the years immediately following the capture of Americans by Barbary Corsairs, dozens of anti-slavery essays and works of literature were published that used the Barbary Coast as a mirror to reflect Americans' own sins of slavery. Benjamin Franklin's final public essay before his death in 1790 made use of this strategy. Franklin wrote as if he was a monarch of one of the Barbary states, defending the practice of enslaving white Christians. The reasons given by Franklin in this satirical essay, that Barbary slavery exposed Christians to Islam, provided them food and shelter, and saved them from the incessant wars plaguing Europe, mirrored those given by white Americans to justify enslaving Africans. The message of Franklin's essay was clear. If Barbary slavery was wrong, so was American slavery. Another anti-slavery activist to use this comparison was Royal Tyler, a New England author who in 1797 published the novel The Algerine Captive. Abolitionist Senator Charles Sumner later praised this novel as the prototype of Uncle Tom's Cabin. The main character of the novel was a Bostonian doctor who takes a job as a surgeon on a slave ship carrying Africans to the United States. But the doctor is repulsed by the horrors the African captives suffer during the Middle Passage and declares his intention to become an abolitionist upon his return to the United States. But he never gets the chance to make good on his promise, for in an act of retributive justice, his ship is attacked by Barbary pirates and he is taken to Algiers as a slave. Some anti-slavery activists argue that the abduction and enslavement of white American sailors was God's punishment for Americans' refusal to abolish slavery. In 1788, the Pennsylvania Abolition Society published an essay suggesting that the sufferings of the American captives in Algiers, quote, seemed to be intended by divine providence to awaken us to a sense of the injustice and cruelty of dooming our African brethren to a perpetual slavery and misery, end quote. The use of the Barbary captives to attack American slavery begs the question, how successful of an anti-slavery strategy was it? The answer is that this strategy had a somewhat mixed record. In the long run, it had a large impact on the antebellum abolition movement that developed a generation or two later. Some of the most influential abolitionists in the antebellum era, including Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison, among others, adopted the same strategy and shamed American slaveholders by referring to them as Barbary pirates. For example, Charles Sumner routinely called the South the Barbary States of America. Fugitive slave narratives, which were a key aspect of antebellum abolitionist strategy to generate sympathy for enslaved African Americans, borrowed heavily from the earlier Barbary captivity narratives written by the captive American sailors describing their sufferings in North Africa. These were immensely popular in the years surrounding the Barbary Wars. In 1841, African-American fugitive slave Lewis Clark published his own narrative after his escape from slavery in Kentucky to the Free States, and in this narrative he referred to his former white enslavers as, quote, the Algerines of Kentucky. In the short term, however, at the time of the Barbary Wars themselves, the plight of the Barbary captives had very little impact on slavery in the United States. Slavery continued to grow in the South and expand westward. Historian Lawrence Peskin blames the failure of this strategy on racism, stating, Tawny skin, savagery, and slavery were simply too tightly connected in too many Americans' minds for this approach to have widespread success. And his argument has merit. When most white Americans heard of the abduction of their countrymen by Barbary Corsairs, they did not react with shame at their own hypocrisy regarding slavery, 
but rather reacted with disgust and outrage that supposedly free American citizens could be reduced to slavery by African barbarians. One newspaper complained that the American captives had become the slaves of slaves. In addition to outrage, many Americans felt helpless. The historian Frank Lambert argues that the capture of the American sailors threw into question the very notion of American independence, so recently gained through the rebellion against Great Britain. If American sailors could not pass freely through the world's oceans, then what was their independence even worth? Were they better off protected by the British Crown and the British Navy? News that some American ships were attempting to evade Barbary Corsairs by flying the British flag only added to this feeling. Likewise, when Thomas Jefferson was in France in 1785, he urged his daughter, who was supposed to visit him, to avoid crossing the Atlantic in an American ship and to instead choose a British or French ship. Only then would she be safe from Barbary Corsairs, he thought. To Jefferson and to many others, the Barbary attacks exposed the inability of the American government to protect its citizens. When the first American sailors were captured in 1785, the United States had not yet adopted the Constitution. The American people were governed by the Articles of Confederation, a political pact forged during the Revolution in which each of the 13 states agreed to loosely align themselves for their mutual well-being. But wary of the type of centralized, tyrannical power they were currently rebelling against, Americans designed the Articles of Confederation to be a weak, decentralized government. There was a national Congress, but it lacked the authority to tax individual states or the American people directly. It was this Confederation Congress that had to figure out how to free the American captives in Algiers. Without the ability to tax, Congress had no way to pay for a navy capable of combating the Barbary pirates. The Continental Navy that fought the British had been disbanded soon after the War of Independence came to an end. Thus, freeing the captives through military force was out of the question. Most Americans probably agreed with George Washington, who as a private citizen at Mount Vernon in 1786 wrote, Would to heaven we had a navy able to reform those enemies to mankind, meaning Barbary pirates, or crush them into non-existence. But without a navy, and with the prospect of raising the money to pay for one a pipe dream, the Confederation Congress resigned itself to paying ransom. But even this proved too challenging for the feeble Confederation Congress. But without the ability to tax, Congress couldn't pay the hundreds of thousands of dollars Algiers was demanding for the release of the captives, let alone the money to secure tribute treaties with all the other Barbary states to prevent future attacks. Congress sent diplomats to negotiate with Algiers, but they failed, with Thomas Jefferson complaining, quote, an angel sent on this business, and so much limited in funds, could have done nothing. With the federal government unable to raise the money, some private citizens took it upon themselves to fundraise for the captives, and either sent the money directly to Barbary, or tried to give it to the government to use in their negotiations. And here we see how in the young United States, an expansive public sphere developed. Citizens were not content to leave policy to elected officials, but wanted a say in matters, and, and saw private organizing as a legitimate way to shape policy. Reverends asked their congregations to donate money. Several theaters donated the proceeds from their shows to the captives' ransom fund. Several people came forth with, with proposals for lotteries to raise money. And in one of the stranger fundraisers, one Philadelphian sold tickets to see his pet elephant and promised to donate the proceeds to the captives. Beyond just raising money, these fundraisers also provided the opportunity for Americans who had no formal role in the political system 
including women, to engage in the public conversation. The wives of some of the captives also wrote letters directly to government officials, pleading with them to assist the captives and provide relief to their families left destitute by their husband's absence. Female activism on behalf of the captives supports the findings of scholars who argue that women in the early republic, though denied the right to vote in most cases, found other indirect ways to engage in the political sphere and shape policy. All told, the public fundraisers throughout the United States raised a few thousand dollars, enough to pay the ransom of three of the captives, but it fell far short of the hundreds of thousands of dollars that Algiers was requesting for the release of all captives. For that kind of money, the government was required. But many Americans believe that the government would never be able to free the captives unless the Articles of Confederation were amended or replaced entirely. John Jay complained of Congress's inability to raise the money to pay the ransom, saying, quote, Congress cannot command money for that, nor indeed for other very important purposes. Government, if it may be called government, is so inadequate to its objects that essential alterations or essential evils must take place. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, and James Madison all expressed similar opinions. The plight of the Barbary captives was likely on the minds of those who met in Philadelphia in 1787 to craft the Constitution and likely on the minds of voters as they went to the polls to vote on whether or not to adopt the Constitution. When the captives heard news that the Constitution had been ratified, and a new, stronger government had been created under the leadership of President George Washington, they were hopeful that their redemption would soon be at hand. Yet, the new government still lacked a navy, and so President Washington had a relatively weak hand to play against the Barbary states. Initial diplomatic negotiations failed, so in 1794... Washington asked Congress to authorize the construction of a navy. This request proved contentious. To understand the debate in Congress in 1794 over the construction of the navy, we must understand the political environment in the United States at this time. Although the founders roundly criticized the notion of partisanship, it didn't take long for them to see the utility of political parties. By Washington's second term as president, two political parties had formed. In support of Washington were the Federalists. As the name suggests, Federalists wanted a strong federal government with the power to protect Americans from foreign foes and maintain domestic law and order. Federalists, among which ranked John Adams, Alexander Hamilton, and President Washington himself, also envisioned a multifaceted national economy in which not only agriculture but also banking, manufacturing, and merchant activity would thrive. Federalists took their support primarily among the merchant classes on the East Coast, and particularly New England, and they supported Washington's request for a navy. If a navy could protect American sailors and allow merchants to thrive, it was worth the cost. In opposition to Federalists were the, somewhat confusingly named by today's standards, Democratic Republicans, often referred to as Jeffersonian Republicans after their de facto leader. Democratic Republicans were most popular amongst farmers and planters, particularly in the South. To Democratic Republicans, Federalists' vision of a manufacturing and banking economy was too similar to Great Britain, America's recent enemy, and had the potential for tyranny and corruption. Democratic Republicans saw an agricultural economy of yeoman farmers and a small, weak central government as the surest guarantee of liberty. Jefferson, James Madison, and other Democratic Republicans resoundingly opposed the construction of a navy, believing that a standing military could be used to suppress American liberty. 
Also, a navy required taxes. It required government contracts with shipbuilders and, and suppliers, all of which were open to corruption. Together, the high taxes and corruption would slowly erode American liberty. In a bit of political hyperbole that would fit well with our current political climate in America, Democratic-Republican Representative William McClay predicted during one of the congressional debates that if a navy was built, he said, quote, farewell freedom in America, end quote. After a fierce political battle, Washington's naval construction bill passed Congress, but only by two votes, with the vote largely divided along party lines and regional lines. And in a nod to the sectional tensions already plaguing the United States, the bill only passed with the understanding that each of the promised American frigates would be built in a separate port city from Portsmouth, New Hampshire in the north down to Charleston, South Carolina in the south in order to please all sectional interests. While the new naval frigates were still under construction, diplomacy finally prevailed in freeing the captives from Algiers. In 1796, Washington's final year as president, and over 10 years after the initial captures of the first Americans, negotiators finally agreed to an acceptable ransom payment and the captives returned to America. Tribute treaties with the other Barbary states were arranged soon after. Altogether, the ransom payments to Algiers, as well as annual tribute payments to Algiers, Morocco, Tunis, and Tripoli, totaled well over $1 million, 20% of the entire federal budget in 1796. Perhaps most frustrating to the American people, the ransom and tribute proved ineffective. Though they freed the American captives, they did little to prevent further harassment of American ships, or the near-constant requests for increased tribute payments from each of the Barbary states. Most Americans were ashamed at having to pay tribute to Barbary. Even President Washington felt this way, stating that he found the tribute disagreeable, but while the Navy was still being built, he said there appeared no alternative. That didn't stop Democratic Republicans from criticizing Washington, and especially his successor to the presidency, John Adams, for adopting the policy of yearly tribute payments. In the 1800 presidential election between Adams and Jefferson, Jefferson's supporters made Adams' supposed weakness towards the Barbary states a campaign issue. Jefferson won the 1800 election, and for the first time, Democratic Republicans were in control of the federal government. To President Jefferson, war against Barbary provided a useful way to signal to the American people that a new administration was in charge, one that would reverse the mistakes of the previous administration. In 1801, soon after taking office, Jefferson dispatched the American Navy to the Mediterranean to intimidate the Barbary states into backing down from their tribute demands. Unbeknownst to Jefferson, the Bashaw, or ruler of Tripoli, had simultaneously declared war on the United States when the American consul in Tripoli refused to increase the annual tribute payment. So we have an American fleet arriving in the Mediterranean in 1801, just as Tripoli declared war on the United States. The stars of war had aligned, and the Barbary Wars had begun. But just as the debate over the construction of the Navy revealed the partisanship that plagued Washington's administration, so too would the Barbary Wars highlight the partisanship of the Jeffersonian era. Jefferson, as commander-in-chief, sought to balance his desire for decisive military action against Barbary with his belief that a large navy, with the required taxes to pay for it, was a threat to liberty. And so Jefferson only sent a small fleet to the Mediterranean, refused to raise taxes, and hoped that a small-scale blockade of Tripoli Harbor would be enough to compel the Bashaw to seek peace. 
The result was a drawn-out stalemate that lasted several years. Federalists, despite earlier supporting tribute payments instead of war under Washington and Adams, now criticized Jefferson for not waging the war against Tripoli with enough vigor. In late 1803, one of the American frigates patrolling Tripoli Harbor, the USS Philadelphia, got stuck on a reef and was quickly surrounded by enemy boats. Its entire crew of over 300 men and officers was taken prisoner. Federalists pointed to the capture of the Philadelphia as evidence that Jefferson's policy of waging war on the cheap had endangered American lives. Facing domestic criticism, Jefferson adjusted his strategy. He asked Congress to increase the size of the Navy, specifically requesting smaller gunboats which would prove helpful in the shallow waters along the Barbary Coast. To pay for his bigger Navy, Jefferson asked Congress to raise taxes on imports. Congress approved Jefferson's proposal, but in a sign of just how partisan American politics had become, Federalists now changed their position by 180 degrees, criticizing Jefferson's tax as, quote, an oppressive burden. It appeared that whatever position Jefferson took, Federalists took the opposite. And in this way, the war against Tripoli feels like America's first partisan war, where your view of the conflict often came down to your political party, which now we sort of just take for granted as part of politics. Uh, but the fact that it happened during the Barbary Wars, so early in our history, tells us a lot about the history of partisanship in this country. With a larger naval force now in the Mediterranean, Jefferson embraced a more aggressive strategy to bring the war to a close. The Navy carried out several large-scale bombardments of Tripoli City. Jefferson also authorized a bold and risky plan to depose the Bashaw of Tripoli, Yusuf Karamanli, in a coup and replace him with his brother, Hamet, who had been exiled a few years prior and was living in Egypt. In exchange for American assistance, Hamet promised to free all American prisoners from the captured Philadelphia and to forego any future attacks on American ships once he had replaced his brother on the Tripolitan throne. In one of the first examples of attempted regime change in American history, Jefferson authorized Army Captain William Eaton to land in Egypt with a handful of Marines and rendezvous with Hamet. And William Eaton, by the way, is a really fascinating figure. If you want to spend a few minutes learning something interesting, just Google William Eaton and, and read about him. You won't regret it. Eaton then raised a small army of several hundred mostly Arab mercenaries uh, in Egypt. And in the spring of 1805, in a sort of Lawrence of Arabia type campaign, Eaton and Hamet led their ragtag army of Arab mercenaries, accompanied by the families of the Arabs, on a 600-mile overland journey through the deserts of North Africa from Egypt into the domain of Tripoli. In a fierce battle, Eaton's army seized the strategically located city of Dern on the Tripolitan coast and proclaimed it in the name of Hamet. The Marines were so proud of their role in the battle that they later added the line to the shores of Tripoli in their now famous Marines hymn. Eaton claimed that in only a few more days, he and his army could march on Tripoli City and depose the Bashaw, free the American captives, and end the war in a single stroke. But Eaton never got the chance to put his boast to the test. Bashaw Yusuf, feeling pressure from Eaton's seizure of Dern and from the bombardments of his city from the U.S. Navy, agreed to a negotiated end to the war. The Jefferson administration, eager to put the war behind them after over four years of costly naval operations, readily agreed. Per the terms of the peace treaty, Tripoli freed the American prisoners and promised to forego all future attacks on U.S. ships. In exchange, the American government paid Tripoli $60,000 as ransom for the release of the captured Americans. 
the treaty also stipulated that Eaton and Hamet must withdraw from Dern. Eaton initially considered disobeying the order to retreat, not wishing to abandon his Arab soldiers and their families who had allied with he and Hamet. For the peace treaty guaranteed the safe evacuation of all American soldiers and Marines, but it made no such promise for Eaton's Arab allies, including their families who had accompanied them on the campaign. To make matters more complex, an army loyal to the Bashaw had surrounded Dern, with the intention of attacking Eaton's Arab allies as soon as he left. In a scene eerily similar to that which unfolded at the Kabul airport in the final days of the American war in Afghanistan, Eaton, Hamet, and the handful of Marines evacuated Dern in the middle of the night to an American frigate anchored offshore, deliberately hiding their intentions from their Arab allies by retreating under cover of darkness in order to not cause a panic. Once the Arabs grew wise to the fact that the American soldiers had abandoned them, however, chaos ensued. Some of Eaton's former allies and their families fled to the mountains to evade the encircling army. Others looted the military equipment the Americans left behind and vowed to make a last stand. Watching the scene unfold from the deck of the American frigate anchored off the coast, Eaton lamented, This moment we dropped them from ours into the hands of the enemy for no other crime but too much confidence in us. Unfortunately, the fate of the Arabs the Americans left behind remains unknown. Despite Eaton's complaints, most Americans rejoiced when they heard news of the peace. Francis Scott Key penned a song commemorating what he saw as a great American victory, describing how, quote, the turbaned head bowed to the star-spangled flag of our nation. A few years later, Key would change the lyrics but keep the same tune, turning this song into the star-spangled banner. In 1808, a marble monument was unveiled at the Naval Yard in Washington, D.C., commemorating the sailors who lost their lives fighting Tripoli. As a bit of trivia, I'll add that this was the first monument built to honor the American military, and it actually still stands today at the Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland. But some of the enthusiasm for the war's end was sapped when news reached the United States of the terms of the treaty in which the American government had to pay Tripoli $60,000 in ransom. Federalists seized on the ransom as another opportunity to shame the Jefferson administration, calling his treaty premature and dishonorable. Better to have let Eaton and Hamet continue their conquest of Tripoli, they argued. Eaton publicly lambasted the Jefferson administration on multiple occasions for what he termed a disgraceful treaty, and for abandoning Hamet and their Arab allies who they had sworn to assist. In 1806, Federalists in Congress formed a committee, ostensibly to investigate whether the U.S. government owed Hamet anything for failing to live up to their end of the bargain with him. But in reality, Federalists hoped that their committee and its hearings would keep Jefferson's payment of ransom in the national spotlight. Jefferson's supporters responded in kind, charging Hamet with being weak, effeminate, and a poor leader, and arguing that Jefferson was actually wise to abandon the alliance with him. One Democratic-Republican newspaper even suggested that Hamet was, quote, addicted to sordid propensities, end quote. And I have to admit, I'm not exactly sure what they're implying here, but it certainly doesn't sound good. Democratic-Republicans also turned against Eaton. In response to his criticisms of Jefferson, the president's supporters circulated spurious stories that Eaton was involved in Aaron Burr's treasonous conspiracy to form an independent nation in the American West. When Federalists in Congress attempted to award Eaton a gold medal, a sword, and land as a sign of gratitude for his wartime services, 
Democratic Republicans voted all of these down. When the war against Tripoli had begun in 1801, some had expressed hope that the conflict would spur Americans to band together and move past the bitter partisanship that had come to define American politics. The narrative of the war and its aftermath, however, proves that partisanship was too entrenched for the war alone to evaporate. Nor did the war against Tripoli solve the problem of Barbary piracy. In 1812, Algerian corsairs captured another American merchant ship and enslaved its crew. The James Madison administration initially had its hands tied by the War of 1812 against Great Britain, but within two weeks of the conflict ending, the Senate declared war on Algiers. The naval flotilla dispatched to the Mediterranean to battle Algiers in 1815 totaled 27 ships, the largest fleet ever assembled by the United States to that point. Madison had clearly learned from his predecessor Jefferson to not wage war against Barbary on a budget. No longer the young, inexperienced navy that fought Tripoli in 1801, the force fighting Algiers in 1815 was battle-hardened after several years of war with the British, the most powerful navy in the world. In a pair of sea battles, the Americans captured two Algerine ships, took 500 prisoners, and killed the admiral of the Algerine fleet. The quick change of momentum stunned the day of Algiers, and when the American fleet sailed into Algiers harbor, he immediately consented to a peace treaty. Algiers freed the American captives without ransom and promised to never attack American ships again. The American Navy then sailed to each of the other Barbary states and forced them at gunpoint to agree to similar terms. The threat from Barbary was now finally over. Unlike the end of war against Tripoli in 1805, victory against Algiers in 1815 brought no partisan bickering, only patriotic celebration. The outcome was too decisive and lopsided to allow for partisan squabbling over treaty terms. Plus, the Federalist Party had by 1815 basically collapsed, having irrevocably damaged its already sinking reputation by opposing the war effort against Great Britain, even to the point of threatening to have New England secede at the Hartford Convention in 1814. When peace with Great Britain came only a few months later, the Federalists looked borderline treasonous. So by the time news reached the United States of the decisive American victory over Algiers, the country was entering a rare period of one-party rule, often referred to as the era of good feelings, for the lack of partisanship. While this moment of national unification proved fleeting, it allowed for an outpouring of nationalistic celebration commemorating victory against Algiers. But amidst all of the celebratory cheers and congratulations, one can still detect a trace of the nation's internal divisions which the era of good feelings had momentarily quieted, but which would soon resurface in the bitterly divisive sectional crisis of the antebellum period. As the nation geared up for the 4th of July celebrations in 1816, many of which would place the recent American victory over the Barbary states front and center, a small local newspaper in the Hudson Valley of New York published an article questioning whether the American people should truly be celebrating the holiday at all. It is really amusing to hear, declared the article, our wiseacre politicians incessantly croaking about liberty and equality when slavery at the present day is not recognized by any civilized nation on earth, save this blessed land of liberty and the Barbary powers. Just as earlier anti-slavery activists like Benjamin Franklin had done, this author was pointing out the hypocrisy of Americans celebrating the liberation of their enslaved countrymen from Barbary while refusing to liberate the enslaved Americans within their own borders. This author would have likely agreed with the historian Robert Allison, who states, 
though the United States had triumphed over Tripoli and Algiers, it had not triumphed over its own sins. And that's a wrap. Next time, Matt will sit down with Carrie Ann and I to discuss his work on the Barbary Wars and a whole lot more. Please do join us. We'll catch you then.